You know, you could, in a very real sense, boil the entirety of the Christian life down to the issue of trust. To be a Christian is to trust. To trust the God that we love, to trust the God that we treasure, to trust the God that saved us through his son. The Christian life in its most basic, simple definition is a life of desperate dependence and trust in the living God. Let that be said. And yet at the exact same time, the Apostle Paul made abundantly clear, didn't he, that life is war. And specifically, it is a war to maintain your very faith. Twice, Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. This is war, Timothy. To maintain and persevere in your faith firm until the end against all the rebel powers that seek to undermine it. This is war, beloved. It is literally a fight to the death. And specifically, the fight that you fight every single day of your life is the fight of faith. To believe what God has spoken, to to stand your ground against the schemes and deceptions, not just of the devil or over the culture, but even the ones that emerge out of your own mind. You, You understand, we wake up in the morning and we are in a war zone. You don't have to go looking for the spiritual battle out there. You are already in it before you even leave your bed. Precisely because the fight for your faith is first the fight in you. You understand to be a Christian is to trust. To trust what God has said in his word. To stare our deepest fears right in the face. And even when our fragile faith hangs by a slender thread, we hold fast to the promises of God in his word, knowing that not one thing happens to us except what God decrees. I'm sure you've noticed that the issue of trust has literally been the predominant theme of Isaiah's prophecy, hasn't it? For 35 chapters. I mean, it's been hard and heavy and dense and complex and profoundly theological, but, but at the end of the day, everything that Isaiah has said is really designed to ask one simple but provocative question. Who will you trust? Who will you trust? Will you trust in Yahweh? Will you trust in the Holy One? In the God who is infinite and eternal and uncaused and uncreated and sovereign and who governs everything that comes to pass? Will you trust him? That's the question. Because you know well, you know well that in the days of Isaiah... The people of Judah were staring their deepest fears right in the face, weren't they? I mean, there was nothing theoretical about this at all. 
I mean, they were, this was literally their worst nightmare come true as the armies of Assyria were marching to Jerusalem, not to join them in worship at the temple, but to burn it to the ground, to burn everything to the ground. There's nowhere to run. There was nowhere to hide. Their backs are against the wall as the armies of Assyria inch closer by the day. There's literally no way they're going to make it out of this alive. And in that situation, they had a choice of how they could respond. They could respond with faithless fear. Or they could respond with fearless faith. And that's it. Faithless fear or fearless faith. And you understand that is the very same question that you must answer every single day of your life. Will I respond with faithless fear or will I respond with fearless faith? A situation arises. A scenario emerges for which you feel wildly unprepared that slaps and pulls the hair of your faith. And in that moment, we have a choice of how we are going to respond, either with faithless fear or with fearless faith. And we cannot do both. What you have to understand is that what we see in Isaiah 36 and 37 and 38 and 39 is designed precisely to give you the firepower you need so that you can respond with fearless faith. Because what Isaiah gives us, well, what Isaiah gives us, get this, is the literal historical play-by-play account when Assyria was on their way to Jerusalem to wipe it out of existence. They had already invaded the land, hadn't they? Dozens and cities and towns leveled to the ground. Thousands of people are dead. Uh, Jerusalem is the last and greatest prize left to take. And the king of Assyria sent a message to the king of Judah in which he offered an ultimatum. And you, you know what the ultimatum was? Here it was. Hezekiah could surrender and give him Jerusalem. Or he could just come and take it. There's the ultimatum. Option one, a few people die. Option two, everybody dies. And that was no empty boast. You understand, Assyria had 200,000 soldiers a few miles away in the next county. That's more people than even lived in Jerusalem without even breaking a sweat. They could have easily invaded the city and leveled the holy city into a pile of smoldering bricks. What would Hezekiah choose? Faithless fear? fearless faith. The well-worn path of faithless fear or the far less traveled path of fearless faith. And, and what you have to understand, what you're about to see in chapter 36, get this, is that Isaiah this is so helpful for us because embedded in this text are the pernicious lies of fear and unbelief that our own hearts are tempted to believe every single day. And it causes us to doubt if Yahweh can and should be trusted. And so let's Go to the text. If you have notes, either way, here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see three lies. Three lies. Three self-destructive lies of fear and unbelief that, me, that we may learn to trust Yahweh as our cosmic king. That's where we're going. Three self-destructive lies of fear and unbelief that we may learn to trust Yahweh as our cosmic king. And the scene breaks down into three parts. Part one is this, the significant scene of the showdown. The significant scene of the showdown. Look at verses one through three. 
And it was in the 14th year of the king Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, went up against all of the fortified cities of, of Judah and captured them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood, notice, at the conduit of the upper pool at the highway of the Fuller's field. And Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the house, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joach, the son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. Well, it does well to set the scene, I suppose. You might remember that the year is 701 BC, and which you have to remember is that Isaiah has been a prophet for about the past 30 years. And there have been three kings that have been under his ministry. And Hezekiah is the fourth and final king under his ministry. And you see there in verse 1 that Isaiah dates the invasion of Sennacherib into Judah in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. And unfortunately, unfortunately, Hezekiah had to lie in the bed that his father made. You remember that his father was King Ahaz. We saw him back in chapter 7, and he was a scumbag and a despicable man who plunged the entire country into spiritual, political, and economic disaster. In fact, the whole Assyrian crisis was entirely Ahaz's fault. He got them into the mess with Assyria, which brought the country on the brink of being obliterated. I mean, this guy was an absolute disaster in every way. And yet in some mystery, unexplainable except by God's providence, the most wicked king in Judah's history, Ahaz, had a son who was one of the greatest kings in human history, Hezekiah. I mean, this dude was for real. This guy was legit. He, he is spoken about in terms that, that even rival King David himself. I mean, you understand, Hezekiah was a man on fire. This was a man who was converted. This was a man who was saved. This is a man who was possessed and consumed with zeal for Yahweh. In fact, he was so godly and brought so much reformation to the land that people even began to suspect, wonder if he was, in fact, the Messiah. He overturned every single one of his father's godless policies. He reopened the temple in Jerusalem for worship, which had been shut down. He made idolatry illegal, which had been legalized under his father. He cleansed the temple from all the idols which had put, been put there by his father. He rebooted the sacrificial system, which had been shut down. He started a music ministry at the temple. He rehired the priests and Levites to lead in worship because they had been fired by his father. He found the pagan sites and altars dedicated to false gods throughout the land, and he leveled them to the ground, and he refused to court the favor of Assyrian kings. I mean, the spiritual resume of Hezekiah is impressive, to say the least. And yet this man's faith, which was like steel, was about to face something so terrifying that it would almost break him in two. Because again, verse 1, in the 14th year of his reign, notice Sennacherib, king of Assyria, went up against all, all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. You can read Assyrian accounts and it says the same thing. You can read Assyrian accounts and it lists and names the cities that they conquered and took over. They're very pleased with themselves. 
And what that means, they marched into Judah with a massive army and they conquered absolutely everything. Every city, every village, every town now had an Assyrian flag waving in the wind. Except for Jerusalem. And notice what the king of Assyria does. Verse 2. He sent, get a load of this guy, the Rabshakeh. From Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a great, literally a heavy army. And he stood at the conduit of the upper pool at the freeway of the Fuller's Field. And Hezekiah's men went out to him for a little meeting. Again, I mentioned the king of Assyria sent a message to Hezekiah. They had a meeting. Here is that meeting. Hezekiah wasn't there. Sennacherib wasn't there, but their representatives were there. Here is that meeting. And notice that Sennacherib sends a representative called Rabshakeh. And literally in the Hebrew, he he sends with him a a heavy army, intimidating an arm to the teeth. And Rabshakeh is not the dude's name. That's his title. And his job, you're about to see, was to intimidate Assyria's enemies. And to coerce them into surrendering, offer them the chance to surrender. And yet I want you to notice, and it's a very strange detail in the text, but notice where the Rabshakeh stood. He stood at the conduit of the upper pool, at the freeway of the Fuller's Field. What is that? That's a location. That's a location outside the city wall, looking down. All all it was was an irrigation canal that crossed with a major freeway leading into the city. And by itself, it's not particularly significant. It's just a place. And yet, and yet, if I were to say to you, Gettysburg, or the Alamo, or Bourbon Street, or Fifth Avenue, or the Brooklyn Bridge, well, then all of a sudden, all sorts of connotations come into our minds, and that's exactly what this is. This was actually a place of great historical significance, because get this, 30 years before this, at this very location, Isaiah confronted Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, for his unbelief. This very location. And he offered him a chance to trust in Yahweh, and he blew it. And yet here we are again in God's providence at the conduit of the upper pool, at the highway of the Fuller's Field, with the fate of the nation hanging in the balance. And what would Hezekiah choose? Faithless fear or fearless faith? Because you understand how it worked in those days, don't you? The fate of the nation was determined by the faith of the king. And so as Hezekiah stares down the barrel of terror and unbelief, how would he respond in this moment? How would he respond? Would he cower in fear to the bully of Assyria like his father? Or would he trust in Yahweh as his cosmic king overall? And that is the very same question you must ask in your life. You may not be staring down the barrel of King Sennacherib, but what is your Sennacherib? Because then in verse 3 is the meeting between these two parties. Hezekiah's representatives standing on a platform at the wall. Picture it. Sennacherib's representatives down below. And what transpires between these two parties is less a conversation than it is a challenge to Yahweh's absolute supremacy, which brings us to part two. Part two, the sacrilegious challenge to Yahweh's supremacy. 
the sacrilegious challenge to Yahweh's supremacy. Because that really was the point here. The Rabshakeh is not here to accommodate or to negotiate or to work something out. That's not his goal. His goal is to humiliate and intimidate Hezekiah into surrendering, mostly by heckling Yahweh and challenging his supremacy. And so he reads a letter from King Hezekiah himself, and here's where the letter begins, starting in verse 4. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what literally is this trust with which you are trusting? I say your counsel and your strength for war are just empty words. Now, upon whom are you trusting that you have rebelled against me? Behold, You are trusting in that staff, in that crushed reed in Egypt, who should a man lean upon it, it will come through his hand and pierce him. Thus is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to everyone notice who trusts in him. Three things you need to notice there. Number one, notice how Sennacherib speaks about himself. How he gloats exalts himself, makes himself look larger than life. He is the great king, the great king, the king of Assyria. Notice definite article, as in he is lofty and exalted over all other kings, even over Yahweh himself. He believes that. And not just because he's delusional, but because in ancient Near Eastern pagan theology, to conquer a nation was also to conquer their God. And so from Sennacherib's point of view, he really was the great king, even over the God of Israel himself. Calvin says, in order to terrify Hezekiah, Sennacherib extols his own greatness to the skies. But you notice at the exact same time, Sennacherib refused to call Hezekiah a king at all. See that? Called him by his first name. His first name. Doesn't even call him a king as a way to intimidate him and to crush him into submission. But secondly, you need to notice the repetition of the word trust because that is exactly the issue on the table here and the king of Assyria knows it. Verse four, what is this trust with which you are trusting? Verse five, upon whom are you trusting that you have rebelled against me? Verse six, you are trusting in Egypt. And the issue of trust comes up again and again. Verse seven, verse nine, verse 15. In the next chapter, the central focus of this chapter is the question, who will you trust? Who will you trust? But speaking of trust, number three, you need to see here how the king of Assyria rightly exposes just how ridiculous and stupid it was to place their trust in Egypt. Look at verses five and six. Uh, In whom are you trusting? I know who you're trusting in. Behold, you are trusting in that staff, in that crushed reed in Egypt, who should a man lean upon it, it will break through and pierce his hand. Thus is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to everyone who trusts in him. Do you know what this means? This means that Sennacherib found out about their little plan made by Ahaz several years ago to form an alliance with Egypt against Assyria. He found out about the plan. Gotcha. And you understand the, the, the plan to trust in Egypt was a really stupid idea. 
It was really dumb because they were no longer who they used to be. They were but a weak and puny version of their former glory. They didn't stand a chance against the armies of Assyria, and and Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, knew it, and he was right. Look how he describes the armies of of Egypt, verse 6, like a crutch or a cane that you lean upon for help. But the problem is the crutch of Egypt has a fatal flaw. It is weak and brittle and cracked, and should you lean upon them for help, it'll break through and pierce your hand, meaning it was stupid to trust them. It was going to backfire and only hurt you in the end. And he is exactly right. Which is why he says at the end of verse 6, this is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to everyone who trusts in him. It's only going to hurt you in the end. Trusting in Egypt was a terrible, horrible, very bad, no good idea that would end in their demise and humiliation. He was exactly right. And he was right. Not for the ideas that he thought he was right, but he was right for all the reasons that Isaiah had said he was right for the past 30 years. Because you understand, for the people of Israel to make an alliance with another nation was viewed by Yahweh as apostasy. And should they trust in another nation, trust their power instead of the power of Yahweh, Yahweh would allow that choice to run its course and Assyria would level the city of Jerusalem to the ground. But it didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to go down that way. There was the way of escape. And get this, it was the raw and naked trust in the power of God's word alone. You understand, beloved, what God had promised was either true or it was not. And now they had a choice of how they could respond with faithless fear or fearless faith. And my question for you is, what is your Assyria? What is your Assyria? What I mean is, what is the object of terror in your life before which you are tempted to cower in fear? My question is, what is your Egypt? What for you is that cracked and broken crutch that you are leaning upon for joy or safety or security? Because you understand, don't you? Anything other than God and his word is a broken crutch. See, the fight you fight every single day of your lives, beloved, is the fight for your faith. To stand your ground against the lies and deceptions. Not just against the devil and the culture, but the ones that emerge even from your very own soul. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about Judah's trust in Egypt. Is that it wasn't actually true. Not anymore. Not since Hezekiah became the king. When he became the king, they abandoned that policy long time ago. But you see, Sennacherib is very quick. He's very clever. He knows that they trust in Yahweh. He knows that Hezekiah is serious in his devotion to Yahweh. And so he chucks a rock at that also, hoping to shatter his trust in God. Look at verse 7. And if you should say to me, we are trusting in Yahweh our God. Notice what he says. Is it not he who Hezekiah removed his high places and his altars? And he said to Judah and to Jerusalem, before this altar only, you shall worship. That's a really odd statement, isn't it? That's really strange. But you see what this is, don't you? 
That statement is proof that Sennacherib is a cruddy theologian. And he doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. He mocks their faith in Yahweh as absurd, which is true. He does that. But the reason he thinks it's absurd, notice at the text, Hezekiah removed the altars and the high places and limited the worship of Yahweh down to one location. That's a really weird argument, isn't it? Because you see, he heard about Hezekiah's recent reformation and the removal of the altars and the idols out of the land. And in his mind, that was a colossal blunder on Hezekiah's part. You know why? The reason for that is because from a pagan perspective, more gods meant more hope. More altars devoted to the deity meant more power from the deity. And so in his mind, Hezekiah not only insulted Yahweh, but even limited his power to deliver them. Do you see? It's terrible theology, and it has zero basis in reality, but in a serious mind, this made Jerusalem even more vulnerable and easy to destroy. And yet, at the very same time, Sennacherib was exactly right, wasn't he? Yahweh had been angry. He had been angry with his people, not because they only had one altar, but because they had many altars. He was angry with them, not because they worshipped Yahweh alone, but precisely because they had been worshipping many gods. He got it all wrong. It was backwards. And then in verses 8 and 9, the Rabshakeh reading this letter, he, he pauses from the letter, does a little, does a little uh, extrapolation, a little, a little exhortation of his own. He uses warped psychology to coerce them to surrender. Look at verse 8. And now make a bargain with the king of Assyria, and I will give to you 2,000 horses if you are able to put riders upon them. See the mind game? He's playing there. I tell you what, I tell you what, you know, I, since you're unwilling to surrender, I tell you what my master is willing to do. He's willing to give you 2000 of our own horses as a gift to you for you to use in war against us. If you even have enough soldiers to ride them, you see, just cowing them into submission. Verse 9, full-on mockery and exaggeration. How, how do you think that your entire army can take even the least of our soldiers? Here, here's our water boy. You couldn't even take this guy. Here's the guy who holds the shields. You couldn't even kill this guy. Just, just, you might as well just surrender and stop wasting everybody's time here. But then, but then verse 10, notice Sennacherib places ultimate ace in the hole. Get this, guess what he does? He uses the very prophecies of Isaiah against them to crush their hope and undermine their faith. Look at the text. This is so clever and nasty. Verse 10, and now, is it not because of Yahweh that I came up to this land to destroy it? For Yahweh commanded me, go up to this land and destroy it. Do you see what he's saying? It's futile for you to resist me. Because even your own God delivered you into my hand. It is God's will that I blow you up and wipe you out of existence. Which means what? It means the king of Assyria knew. Somehow, some way, the prophecy of Isaiah had come to him. 
Because Isaiah had prophesied multiple times that Assyria was going to come and invade the land and, and destroy the cities. And that's true. He did do that. And Sennacherib, of course, uses this precious piece of information to pressure Hezekiah to buckle his knees and surrender. However, the king of Assyria must not have read the bottom half of the memo. Because he also said in chapter 10, 12 through 19, 29, verses 5 through 8, chapter 30, 27 through 33, 31, verses 8 and 9, and chapter 33, verse 11, that at the 11th hour, just before the buzzer, that Yahweh would intervene with sovereign and supernatural power and slaughter Assyria and save Jerusalem. He's been preaching that for years. He must have missed that part because in the very next chapter, that's exactly what he does. Sennacherib was selective in his interpretation and he reproached the living God and it cost him everything. Which brings us to part three. Part three is where the plot thickens. I'm calling this the sadistic boast of Sennacherib. The sadistic boast of Sennacherib. You might remember, not because you were there personally to see it, but you might remember that during World War II in England, they would post posters around the city. Did you know that? And it was a way to keep the people calm, the way to keep the people from panicking in the event of a bombing or an air raid. And the posters were simply a reminder to them to not freak out should something happen. And the posters, you remember, they said, keep calm, carry on. Some, when things get tense and panic and dangerous, don't, don't panic, don't, don't, don't do anything irrational, just keep calm, carry on. And keeping panic from spreading in the city is exactly what Hezekiah's men tried to do. Because what you have to understand is that people can hear this conversation. Citizens from the city can overhear what's being said. There was public access, it seems, to this meeting. People on the ledge at the wall, people at the city gate, they can hear what's going down and hearing the threats and the intimidation. And the last thing the leaders need is a city in chaos and an uproar. And so verse 11, Hezekiah's men attempt to do a little damage control. Look what they do. And Eliakim and Shibna and Joach said to the Rabshakeh, speak now to your servants in Judean. You know what that is? That's Hebrew. Speak to your servants uh, um, uh, in, uh, let me see. Uh, do not speak to your servants in, in Hebrew for we, or speak to, under, sorry, let me back up here. I'm, I'm reading it in Hebrew and I'm getting it messed up. Okay. Speak to your servants in Aramaic. There we go. For we understand. And do not speak to us in Judean or Hebrew in the ears of the people who are on the wall. You, you understand Hebrew was the language of the Jews, right? the common people. Aramaic was the language of diplomacy, the political language of the day, not understood by the common people. So you can see the request, can't you? Please do not speak to us in Hebrew. These people can understand you. We, we, don't, we don't need a riot on our hands here. Let's just... Work this out in Aramaic, sort this whole thing out and get this figured out. And that's a reasonable request. The problem is Assyrians are not reasonable men. And the Rabshakeh is not a courteous man. He's not, here to, he's not here to accommodate them or to negotiate them. He is here to inject as much fear into the city as absolutely possible. And honestly, to be honest, they should have just kept their mouth shut. Because the Rabshakeh sees this little weakness and does not hesitate for a moment to exploit it. Look at verses 12 and 13. And the Rabshakeh said, Did my servant send me here only to speak these words to you and to your servant? 
And did he not send me to speak these words to the men who are sitting on the wall, destined to eat their own feces and drink their own urine with you? Unbelievable. And the Rabshakeh stood, verse 13, and he called with a great voice in Hebrew, say, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you that um, saying that uh, uh, the city will be delivered. Here's the real issue. Verse 15. And do not let Hezekiah cause you to trust in Yahweh, saying Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to your king. Do you see? Even this pagan king can identify that the issue on the table is trust. Who do you trust? Who do you actually believe wields the keys of power in the world? Who is it exactly do you think has the power to do as they please and carry out their plan on the scene of human history? Because don't you dare let Hezekiah convince you for a second that it is Yahweh. It is not. Verse 12, look, look at the Rabshakeh's response to the polite request of Hezekiah's men. Again, did he send me to speak these words only to you and to your servant? Did he not send me to speak these words to those men sitting on the wall, destined to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? In other words, why should these people not hear what's going to happen to them? Do they not have a right to hear that they're going to be so utterly destroyed that they're going to eat their own feces and drink their own urine to survive? Lowest form of degradation. I mean, this guy's job here is to inflict as much psychological damage as possible. And verse 13, that's exactly what he does. He stands up at the top of his lungs in Hebrew for everyone to hear. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you. For he is not able to deliver you and do not let him cause you to trust in Yahweh saying Yahweh will deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to your king. I mean, do you hear how Sennacherib frames the issue? Don't you? He is the great king, not Hezekiah and certainly not Yahweh. I'm the one in charge here. Have you not been paying attention? I mean, can you see what we're capable of and what we've done? And from a certain point of view, he was right about Hezekiah, wasn't he? He was right. As a human king, he could not deliver them. Not from Assyria. He couldn't. No one could. There was not one single reconnaissance plan in existence that Hezekiah could have designed that would ever, ever save them from Assyrian power. That's true. But the charge that Hezekiah was a liar, man, that was loaded. That was loaded because precisely the message of Hezekiah to his people was that they needed to trust in Yahweh, that that was the only way out of this, that should they cancel the check to Egypt, turn from their false gods, take a sledgehammer to the idols, get their rears down to the temple in national repentance and faith that not one single arrow, Isaiah said, would be launched over the wall. That's what Isaiah said. Not one arrow will fly over if you repent and trust. 
And the king of Assyria says, don't you believe that nonsense for a second? You think Yahweh can protect you from me? And you understand, don't you? That, that is exactly how faithless fear and unbelief operates in our lives, doesn't it? It makes us look at our problems and our fears and our dilemmas through the eyes of human logic and secular reasoning to the, the, the point where faith in Yahweh seems foolish and irrational. That's what faithless fear and unbelief does. It inflates and embellishes and exaggerates the dangers and dilemmas of our lives to the degree where we begin to un-God God from his supremacy. I mean, can you not see the cage match in your soul every day between your theology and your feelings? You believe one thing, you feel something else, which is true. The text says one thing, you feel something else. Who has a louder voice? Because you understand in this life, we are either filled with faithless fear or we are filled with fearless faith in the truth. And only one of those can withstand the pressures and trials of this life. And here's what's really interesting. It takes a strange turn, just like faithless fear does in our lives. The king of Assyria, get this, he offers himself to Judah as the only viable option of trust. Look at verses 16 through 18. Verse 16, do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the great king, make peace with me and come out to me and eat each from his own vine, each from his own fig tree, drink each from his own cistern until I come and I take you to a land like your land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, lest Hezekiah deceive you saying Yahweh shall deliver you. Do you see what this is? This is smooth talking propaganda at its very finest. Do not trust Hezekiah. Do not trust in his calls to trust in Yahweh. Instead, instead, make a deal with me. Look, we don't have to kill all of you. And you certainly don't want to die. So just surrender. Yield to me as your Lord and, and your King and your Savior. And for a, a, a small monthly fee of tribute to me. You can go on living your normal lives in relative peace. Everybody wins here. That's what he means when he says, eat from your own vine and drink from your own uh, cistern like the communists of old. He makes the thought of surrender seem like a dream come true. And yet there's an aspect, there's an aspect of his ultimatum that is troubling to say the least. Verse 17. You will live happy, healthy lives under my supervision until I come to you and I take you to a land like your land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and, and vineyards. I mean, do, do you see what he's promising? Or should I say what he's threatening? I mean, he's being honest here. I'll give him that. But what he is threatening is covered in so much honey and it sounds so sweet that it's kind of hard to understand what it is he's saying. He's, what he's saying is, you can fight me and eat your own excrement. Or 
You can surrender to me, and I'll bring you to my country, a land of grain and wine and, and, and vineyards and food. And trust me when I say that the grass is greener in Assyria. You'll love it there. I mean, the manipulation here is just incredible. I mean, you see what he's doing. He is threatening exile. Exile. But he makes it sound so sweet that it makes it sound like he's doing them a favor. That one day he, he will come and take them a land far away. That with their, with their wildest dreams will be fulfilled. And at the end of the day, is this not a backhanded slap to the faithfulness of God? God promised you that he would give you a land of peace flowing with milk and honey. And clearly he is not able to deliver on his promises. But I can. I can do that. I can give you grain and wine and endless food. And I can give you what Yahweh cannot trust Sennacherib. I will be your father. I will be your king. I will be your savior. And you understand that is exactly what faithless fear and unbelief does in our lives, doesn't it? It repaints scenarios that don't include trusting God and his perfections. Get this, faithless fear substitutes other promises for God's promises. Other power for God's power. Other wisdom for God's infinite wisdom found in his very word, which means at its very root, faithless fear is flirtation with idolatry. It's to call the very character and word of God into question. And I'm not, saying, I'm not saying faith is easy. It's not. Faith is a war, and it is a fight to the death. Let that be said. But it is also not very complicated. Either his word is true, or it is not. Either God is sovereign, or he is not. Either we can trust him to choose our trials and bring into our, moment, into our lives anything, any gift he pleases, or we cannot trust him. And thankfully, we don't have to figure out which one of those true is true. God is sovereign. He can be trusted. He does choose our trials. You understand you can see when the Lord loves you with radical affection, when he brings into your life, when, when he makes you face your deepest fears again and again and again. That's not a sign of God's hatred for you. That's a sign of God's love for you. We must see that all the trials into our lives are a gift for us to trust his son. Don't you see? God is most glorified in us when we have nothing to trust but him alone. Almost done here. The Rabshak is really in a groove. He accelerates his letter to reproach and mockery of the living God. Again, his aim is to so deplete the hope of the Jews that they just cower in surrender. Look at verses 18 through 20. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, saying Yahweh will deliver us. That is a joke. Are you kidding me? Have you not seen what we've been doing to your country? Verse 18. Did the gods of the nations deliver their land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamat? And Arpad, and where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And, 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 and the, did they deliver Samaria from my hand? 
Who among all the gods of these countries that delivered their land from the, from my hand that Yahweh shall deliver Jerusalem from my hand. And that's an interesting point, isn't it? Where were these gods when these people needed them? Where were they? Where were these gods when these people needed them the most? Where were these gods when the Assyrian armies stormed the gates and torched the cities and slaughtered the people? Where were these gods of Hamat and Arpad and Sepharvaim and even Samaria? And that's a really, really good point. That's a really good point and hard to debate. If those gods were real, I mean, if you believe those deities to be engaged in some cosmic struggle for supremacy behind the scenes, then sure. Sure, you defeating the nations that worship those gods, that's a pretty notable achievement. But if all those gods are, are fictions and fake news and fabrications, then your defeat of those nations that worship those false gods really isn't that impressive. Especially when you consider that Yahweh himself is the one who sent Assyria and gave them their victories in the first place because he is the one who rules and reigns and governs the shiftings of entire civilizations. He is the one who launched the clay pigeon of Assyria into the air all so that he could shoot them down with the shotgun of his wrath. Which in the next chapter is exactly what he does. And so airtight and impressive, though the argument sounds on the surface, it was stupid. It was nonsensical, and so nonsensical that it didn't, it didn't even deserve a response. And under the orders of Hezekiah, they did not give him one. Look at verse 21. But they were silent, and they did not answer him a word, for it was the command of the king, saying, Do not answer him. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, Proverbs says. Reveal nothing, concede nothing, admit nothing, show nothing, give them nothing. Don't jump in their rhetorical web and, and try, to, try to untangle the untangleable, try to reason with the unreasonable, because you understand this matter would be settled not by who had the loudest voice, not by who had the biggest army, not by who made the most gruesome threats, but it would be settled by the sovereign decree and power of the living God. That is it. Who cares what they think? Because the only thing that matters is that And that nothing happens except what he ordains, right? Verse 22, no doubt with their heart rates jacked, hands trembling in their pockets, sweat building up on their foreheads. Nevertheless, they put on a brave face till Rabshakeh and his little army leave. And when he finally does leave, they absolutely come unraveled emotionally. Verse 22, and Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the house, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joach, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their robes torn, and they declared to him the words of the Rabshakeh. You understand, they tore their robes because their souls were rocked. And why were they? Why were they? Precisely because from a human perspective, it looked over for the great city. It was over. 
There's no way they're going to make it out of this alive. Maybe they had sinned too much. Maybe they had pushed God too far. Maybe the streams of his mercy had run dry. Is that how you feel? You sin too much, you push God too far. Streams of his mercy have run dry for you. If you have a pulse, it is not too late to repent and relent and yield to Christ. And the most dreadful thought of all is, well, maybe Sennacherib was right. Maybe he didn't have the muscle to protect his people. Or maybe, maybe these men had fallen victim to faithless fear. Because Hezekiah was right. Because Isaiah told him so, that even though they deserve the opposite, that should the king place his trust in Yahweh, that he would intervene and he would spare the city of Jerusalem from the hand of Assyria. Because you know, the story is not over. The gripping outcome and the slaughter of the Assyrian army is in the very next chapter. That's exactly what we're going to see next week. But you know what we see here in chapter 36? are the pernicious lies of fear and unbelief that our own hearts tell us every single day. And I had 10, I give you three. For a small fee, I will give you the other seven on another day. Self-destructive lie, number one. Number one, listen carefully. Fear and unbelief, tell me if you haven't seen this in your life. Fear and unbelief exaggerate the dangers and dilemmas and pain of our lives to the degree where we begin to dethrone God from his supremacy. Do we not do that? Fear and unbelief exaggerate the dangers, dilemmas, pain of our lives to the degree that we begin to dethrone God from his supremacy. I mean, we don't realize we're doing that, but that's exactly what we're doing. People are big. God is small. Problems are big. God is small. Fears are big. God is small. Have you been there? We think and we rethink and we overthink and we overanalyze our problems until after a while, God is not even a thought in our minds anymore. We get so consumed and myopic and overwhelmed and entrenched that after a while, our problems are the only thing that we can see. And after a while, crying out to God feels foolish and irresponsible. Why would he help us? Have you been there? Are you there at this moment? Because you understand faithless, fearless faith, fearless faith is why. And you see, fearless faith is very careful, listen, not to interpret our circumstances based on how we feel in the moment, but rather fearless faith prayerfully remembers that all the earth-shaking forces unleashed on the earth are unleashed by Jesus Christ. That he reigns today that he's in the control room of the universe, that he is the only ultimate cause. Fearless faith remembers that all the sins of man and all the schemes of Satan must ultimately enhance the kingdom and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when we remember that in moments of panic and fear, we can laugh the laugh of faith, knowing that Jesus Christ has all the power over evil and over the evil one. Self-destructive fear, number two. Number two, listen carefully. Faithless fear and unbelief imagines worst case scenarios not rooted in reality that drive our souls into deeper fear and despair. Have you done that? I've lived that so many times. If fear and unbelief imagines worst case scenarios, it imagines them not rooted in reality that drive us into deeper fear and despair. We do this really quickly. We imagine what could happen and what might happen and what might possibly happen. And on the basis of what we imagine in our own minds, we cave to fear. And then we look to something other than God for our comfort and security. And just hearing that out loud, you can smell the problem, can't you? This kind of fear is idolatry. Faithless fear has such a little God that it worships that it just assumes that there are forces in the universe that not even he can control. And thus we live our lives robbed of the joy that God intends for those who know his son. Don't you see, faith in God removes fear from the heart. When we rightly consider who God has revealed himself to be in his holy word, we find that the fears which were previously so crippling to us fade into oblivion. All courage to face the unknown and the greatest terrors of a fallen world come not from an inner spring of moral resolve, but from a clear perception of true reality. Namely, that God decrees everything that comes to pass. Number three. Number three, faithless fear and unbelief makes us forget our eschatology. Doesn't it? It makes us forget our eschatology. You see, it makes us forget that our lives are but these tiny pixels on the massive screen of God's plan unfolding in history. And we cannot see that our lives occur in a context of a greater plan. And yet we get so clenched up and short-sighted and consumed by the pain and the problems right in front of our face that we, we, we forget what God is doing in human history and what he's doing in and through your fear, in and through your pain, in and through the monotony, in and through your sadness and depression, what he is doing is weaning you off of lesser pleasures. In other words, he is making you a people of staggering kingdom hope and expectation. What I'm saying is, what he's doing is very simply, he is making us long for the arrival of Jesus Christ. You see, fearless faith understands that all the pains and problems of this life are but preparation for the paradise to come. That the calm will be the better because of the storm that we endure. 
that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That eye has not seen, that ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. See, that right there is truth. And a mind filled with truth, in a mind filled with truth, beloved, there is just no more room anymore for the self-destructive lies of fear. And unbelief. Let's pray. O King Jesus, we stand and we sit in silence before you, knowing that you have authority over, over all authority in heaven and on earth knowing that you are far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, that you uphold all things by the word of your power. We believe that. Help our unbelief. Assist us, poor cripples. Help us, poor paralytics in our faith. We need you. We need your grace. Help us to have minds filled with truth, to look to you, to hope in you, and may you use our lives for the display of your glory and your profound trustworthiness. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.